Welcome to another episode of Public Domain Library Read-Along with Womance. I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this week I will be reading chapter three. As a reminder, I'm reading all the odd number chapters. Isabeau will be reading all of the even number chapters. And we have like little discussions. We allow ourselves to digress because we can't fight it. Yeah. Also, that's what works. That's what makes us such a dynamic duo. Yeah. And so I invite you to relax. I am not wearing pants because it's very hot in the office where I work. Mm -hmm. So I invite you to also remove your pants. I'm not wearing a bra. How about that? Just get as nude as you're comfortable with and we'll pick back up this book of a traumatized child. That's what's so great about literature. You can escape your heat-drenched particle air quality problem apartment into the cold comforts of the terrifying English Yorkshire. Yorkshire has a temperate climate compared to Chicago and all of the United States pretty much. So you know what, Jane Eyre? You don't have it so bad. Get over it. Isabeau, do you want to do a quick recap of what happened in the first two chapters? Sure. The first two chapters, we meet Jane Eyre, the orphaned protagonist of the tale. She's being relentlessly bullied physically and emotionally by her cousins, especially John Reed. And because of her innate inability to simply suffer in silence or be a genial, obsequious child, she is punished for her riotousness and shut up in a red room were her uncle, who on his deathbed entreated her mean aunt, Mrs. Reed, to take care of her, died. Yep, so Jane has just been dragged back into the Red Room after having a bit of a fit imagining the ghost of her uncle. And that is where we pick up chapter three. Are you ready, Isabel? I am. All right. The next thing I remember is waking up with a feeling as if I had a frightful nightmare and seeing before me a terrible red glare crossed with thick black bars. I heard voices too, speaking with a hollow sound as if muffled by a rush of wind or water, agitation, uncertainty, and an all-predominating sense of terror confused my faculties. Ere long, I became aware that someone was handling me, lifting me up and supporting me in a sitting posture, and that more tenderly than I had ever been raised or upheld before. I rested my head against a pillow or an arm and felt easy. I have arms that can be confused for pillows. <laughs> it's just so sad, like raised up more tenderly than ever before. And that more tenderly. That like little piece of syntax really emphasizes that Jane is bitchy about this. <laughs> Yeah. The addition of and that. In five minutes more, the cloud of bewilderment dissolved. I knew quite well that I was in my own bed and that the red glare was the nursery fire. It was night. A candle burned on the table. Bessie stood at the bed foot with a basin in her hand, and a gentleman sat in a chair near my pillow, leaning over me. I felt an inexpressible relief, a soothing conviction of protection and security, when I knew that there was a stranger in the room, an individual not belonging to Gateshead and not related to Mrs. Reed. Turning to Bessie, though her presence was far less obnoxious to me than that of Abbott, for instance, would have been so pissy. <laughs> Love it. I scrutinized the face of the gentleman. I knew him. It was Mr. Lloyd an apothecary, sometimes called in by Mrs. Reed when the servants were ailing. For herself and the children, she employed a physician. So I want to ask you a question, Isabeau. 
Do you think that Mrs. Reed called for Mr. Lloyd or that Bessie called for Mr. Lloyd? Because I think this intimation can either mean that it's further evidence of how little Mrs. Reed thinks of Jane in comparison to her own children, or it's indicative of the fact that Bessie, the nurse, has taken Jane's well-being into her own hands. I think you're right that it could be read either way. Based on the situation of the details, I knew him. It was Mr. Lloyd, an apothecary, sometimes called by Mrs. Reed when the servants were ailing. And then for herself and the children, she employed a physician. It's like that. It seems to intimate to me that Mrs. Reed has called the apothecary, but like, you know, could be either way. Yeah. This chapter, just these first few paragraphs, is really reminding me of something like a connection I felt to Jane Eyre Mm -hmm. that I don't think I've ever articulated before because I've never really read it with like a thoughtful conversation around it. It was never something I was assigned in a class or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But Jane is such a like rage is her central animator, you know, secretly throughout this. And I think to read something this old that has a heroine who is animated by rage is so interesting. Not only interesting, but I think in some ways, like reading Jane Eyre in this moment right now, and I'm sure you feel this, it's like both exhausting and prescient. You know, so many of these things are never addressed and like incremental change. Like, it's great that I have the right to vote. I really enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. However, this like inducement that I have to smile or like, Mm. you know, those sorts of like make yourself smaller, make yourself nicer. And that how those kinds of conversations just inevitably fuel this like burning rage inside of me that I think I have felt for quite a long time. Yeah. Maybe as young as Jane Eyre. I mean, I was never like an orphan abused but yeah like I know this feeling I recognize it I think it's so intentional that the book starts with Jane at the age of I think nine Mm -hmm. I can vividly remember being nine years old and I do think it's remarkable that even in the year 2000 when I turned nine as we're gonna see this is an awakening to adult problems for Jane Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting that for young girls that usually happens right around age nine yeah And that that's still true and that Jane can still feel like this really radical heroine for the fact that she is animated by rage secretly, but she's still treated with a story that seems so placid and tender in a lot of ways. And she's treated with a great deal of empathy or at least neutrality. Whereas I think of other romance novels we've read where we've had kind of a hateful heroine. Mm -hmm. She's not treated very gently. For instance, Beast by Judith Ivory. Or even Shayna from Wood Wisp. I think what makes both of those cases different with like a quote unquote unlikable heroine is that Jane is telling her own story here. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think Charlotte dislikes her. No, no, no. There's absolutely no indication of that. And even in the moments where she's being like pissy or like those moments of like details that are just like really fucking smug even for a nine-year-old yeah it's so clear that like those are all the ways in which we get to like her right because we access these details of like her further like abuse or like even this whole thing with like called in by mrs reed when the servants were ailing for herself and the children she employed a physician she's just so gossipy in that way (laughs) it's just like yeah highly enjoyable if Hemingway wrote this it would just say it was Mr. Lloyd an apothecary yeah boom boom well who am I he asked I pronounced his name offering him at the same time my hand (laughs) little martyr I know (laughs) he took it smiling and saying we shall do very well by and by then he laid me down and addressing Bessie charged her to be very careful that I was not disturbed during the night having given some further directions and intimated that he should call again the next day he departed to my grief 
I felt so sheltered and befriended while he sat in the chair near my pillow, and as he closed the door after him, all the room darkened and my heart again sunk. Inexpressible sadness weighed it down. So, Jane, we are on chapter three, and we have the second father figure. (laughs) (laughs) She's just putting that projection screen right up on any man. Do you feel as if you should sleep, miss? Asked Bessie rather softly. That addition of miss, Bessie seems contrite. Mm Mm-hmm, indeed. Scarcely dared I answer her, for I feared the next sentence might be rough. I will try. Would you like to drink, or could you eat anything? No, thank you, Bessie. Then I think I shall go to bed, for it is past twelve o'clock. But you may call me if you want anything in the night. Wonderful civility, this. It emboldened me to ask a question. So bitchy. Bessie, what is the matter with me? Am I ill? You fell sick, I suppose, in the red room, with crying. You'll be better soon, no doubt. Bessie went into the housemaid's apartment, which was near. I heard her say, Sarah, come and sleep with me in this nursery. I daren't for my life be alone with that poor child tonight. She might die. It's such a strange thing she should have that fit. I wonder if she saw anything. Mrs. was rather too hard. God, how satisfying mm-hmm. to overhear gossip like that. I'm getting ASMR tingles from it. Sarah came back with her. They both went to bed. They were whispering together for half an hour before they fell asleep. I caught scraps of their conversation, from which I was able only too distinctly to infer the main subject discussed. Something passed her, all dressed in white, and vanished. A great black dog behind him. Three loud raps on the chamber door. A light in the churchyard just over his grave, etc., etc. At last both slept. The fire and the candle went out. For me, the watches of that long night passed in ghastly wakefulness. Ear, eye, and mind were alike strained by dread. Such dread as children only can feel. Ugh, takes me right back. Yeah, it sounds exactly like Carmilla, like that strange... It's almost as though children are like closer to the veil or whatever. Whatever it is that children can really make themselves like mortally afraid. Yeah, yeah. And how it's special and different than adulthood fear. Yeah, exactly. Also, if you haven't read Carmilla, absolutely read Carmilla. It's also in the public domain, so you can enjoy that free of charge. Absolutely read it. No severe or prolonged bodily illness followed this incident of the Red Room. It only gave my nerves a shock, of which I feel the reverberation to this day. So now we're in the present. Yes, Mrs. Reed, to you I owe some fear-filled pangs of mental suffering. But I ought to forgive you, for you know not what you did. While rending my heartstrings, you thought you were only uprooting my bad propensities. Amazing. So this kind of polite empathy comes in. And I think this is a real shift in the text to where we're now mostly going to be kind of in a reflective perspective of quote unquote current day Jane. Sure, but she makes that transition by evoking a crucified Christ. Right, exactly. I ought to forgive you for you knew not what you did. Like, Jesus, Jane. Yeah, but it's once again that like rage is an animating force. Like even her kindnesses come out of a place of vengefulness. Next day by noon, I was up and dressed and sat wrapped in a shawl by the nursery hearth. I felt physically weak and broken down, but my worst ailment was an unutterable wretchedness of mind, a wretchedness which kept drawing from me silent tears. No sooner had I wiped one salt drop from my cheek than another followed. Yet I thought I ought to have been happy, for none of the reeds were there. They were all gone in the carriage with their mama. 
Abbott, too, was sewing in another room, and Bessie, as she moved hither and thither, putting away toys and arranging drawers, addressed to me every now and then a word of unwanted kindness. U-N-W-O-N-T-E-D. What does that mean? Do you know what that means, Isabeau? Unwanted? It's almost like unwarranted is my understanding of that, but we can look it up. Let's do a quick Google. I got it pulled up. Nice. Unaccustomed or unusual. Hmm. This state of things should have been to me a paradise of peace, accustomed as I was to a life of ceaseless reprimand and thinkless fagging. So that word refers to performing wearying labor. So excuse me for saying slur adjacent. Do you think that's right to read out loud? Well, this is the verb, not the noun. Yeah. Yes. It's not a slur. It's the action. Yeah. It's not like the N-word whenever you're reading Mark Twain and your English teacher kind of dead ass stares at you while you popcorn read. Like what what English teachers are constantly making people read that out loud? I would very much like to thank Mrs. Turner for my English class who straight dead eyed us and was like, any of you utter that word out loud and you'll be asked to leave. I was like, cool. Well, we just didn't read out loud to each other by the time we were reading. We also didn't read Mark Twain. Well, we read short stories. But yeah, just like don't assign it. Don't assign it. Or if you're going to assign it, certainly don't read it out loud. I read out loud in almost all of my classes. Are you serious? Yeah, well into senior year of high school, we were still reading out loud. And now that I think about it, that's like actually like especially popcorn where it's like you don't know when it's coming and like it isn't alphabetical. It's just actually. ugh. And you just spend your whole time feeling anxious. Exactly. About it coming to you because that one time Brandon Stuckey said orgasm instead of organism. Exactly. And you don't want to be another Brandon Stuckey. It's actually really mean. It's not a good way of making kids pay attention to the text because like they can't pay attention to the text because they're so afraid that they're going to say it wrong. I know. I'm glad we're able to dredge up that angst and now we can apply it towards our popcorn reading of Jane Eyre. But in fact, my racked nerves were now in such a state that no calm could soothe and no pleasure excite them agreeably. Bessie had been down into the kitchen and she brought up with her a tart on a certain brightly painted china plate whose bird of paradise nestling in a wreath of convolvuli and rosebuds had been wont to stir in me a most enthusiastic sense of admiration and which plate I had often petitioned to be allowed to take in my hand in order to examine it more closely but had always hitherto been deemed unworthy of such a privilege. This precious vessel was now placed on my knee, and I was cordially invited to eat the circlet of delicate pastry upon it. Vain favor coming, <laughs> like most other favors, long deferred and often wished for too late. <laughs> uh. Isabel, I need you to pull it together. I love this because this is the kind of like overwrought purple prose that a tiny martyr thinks in their own mind. Exactly. This is the purple prose I have in my own mind when people don't do the things that I feel like they ought. Yeah, exactly. Long deferred and often wished for too late. I could not eat the tart and the plumage of the bird, the tints of the flowers seemed strangely faded. I put both plate and tart away. Bessie asked if I would have a book. The word book acted as a transient stimulus, and I begged her to fetch Gulliver's Travels from the library. This book I had again and again perused with delight. I considered it a narrative of facts and discovered in it a vein of interest deeper than what I found in fairy tales. For as to the elves, having sought them in vain, 
Among foxglove leaves and bells, under mushrooms and beneath the ground ivy mantling, old wall nooks. I had at length made up my mind to the sad truth that they were all gone out of England to some savage country where the woods were wilder and thicker and the population more scant. So I have a footnote here that this idea that fairies have left the English Isles is a theme in all of the Bronte, Bronte sisters' works. Hmm. Whereas Lilliput and Brob Dig Nag being in my creed solid parts of the earth's surface, I doubted not that I might one day, by taking a long voyage, see with my own eyes the little fields, houses, and trees, the diminutive people, the tiny cows, sheep, and birds of the one realm, and the cornfields, forest high, the mighty mastiffs, the monster cats, and the tower-like men and women of the other. Never forget Jack Black made a movie of Gulliver's Travels. He was actually quite good in it. Live action. He's quite good in a lot of stuff. That's very true. Yet, when this cherished volume was now placed in my hand, when I turned over its leaves and sought in its marvelous pictures the charm I had, till now, never failed to find, all was eerie and dreary. The giants were gaunt goblins, the pygmies malevolent and fearful imps. Gulliver had a most desolate wanderer, his most dread and dangerous regions. I closed the book, which I dared no longer peruse, and put it on the table beside the untasted tart. And I think this is most indicative of her transition into adulthood, is perceiving these things that were once beautiful and curious as frightening. Mm-hmm. and unappetizing. Bessie had now finished dusting and tidying the room, and having washed her hands, she opened a certain little drawer full of splendid shreds of silk and satin and began making a new bonnet for Georgiana's doll. Meantime, she sang. Her song was, In the Days When We Went Gypsying a Long Time Ago. I had often heard the song before, and always with lively delight, for Bessie had a sweet voice. At least I thought so. But now, though her voice was still sweet, I found in its melody an indescribable sadness. Sometimes preoccupied with her work, she sang the refrain very low, very lingeringly, a long time ago. Came out like the saddest cadence of a funeral hymn. She passed into another ballad, this time a really doleful one. So I actually sent you a couple YouTube videos that you could listen to these songs. Did you get a chance to look them up? I did. They're really cool. Maybe we'll send it to Nick and and he can play it instead of me. I am bad at reading aloud and I am an embarrassment at reading poetry. But here goes nothing. My feet they are sore and my limbs they are weary. Long is the way and the mountains are wild. Soon will the twilight close moonless and dreary over the path of the poor orphan child. Why did they send me so far and so lonely, up where the moors spread and gray rocks are piled? Men are hard-hearted and kind angels only, watch o'er the steps of a poor orphan child. Yet distant and soft the night breeze is blowing, clouds there are none and clear stars be mild. God in his mercy protection is showing, comfort and hope for the poor orphan child. Even though I fall o'er the broken bridge passing, or stray in the marshes by false lights beguiled, still will my father, with promise and blessing, take to his bosom the poor orphan child. There is a thought that for strength should avail me, though both of shelter and kindred despoiled. Heaven is a home and a rest will not fail me. God is a friend to the poor orphan child. Come, Miss Jane, don't cry, said Bessie as she finished, and that's true for you too, listeners. She might as well have said to the fire, don't burn. But how could she divine the morbid suffering to which I was a prey? In the course of the morning, Mr. Lloyd came again. So this point at which Jane starts hearing sad intonations, she's empathizing with grown-ups, with grown women. Mm-hmm. 
What, already up? said he as he entered the nursery. Well, nurse, how is she? Bessie answered that I was doing very well. Then she ought to look more cheerful. Come here, Miss Jane. Your name is Jane, is it not? Yes, sir, Jane Eyre. Well, you have been crying, Miss Jane Eyre. Can you tell me what about? Have you any pain? No, sir. Oh, I dare say she's crying because she could not go out with the misses in the carriage, interposed Bessie. Surely not. Why, she is too old for such pettishness. LOL. I thought so, too. And my self-esteem being wounded by the false charge, I answered promptly, I never cried for such a thing in my life. I hate going out in the carriage. I cry because I am miserable. Oh, fie, miss, said Bessie. The good apothecary appeared a little puzzled. I was standing before him. He fixed his eyes on me steadily. His eyes were small and gray, not very bright. But I dare say I should think them shrewd now. He had a hard-featured, yet good-natured-looking face. Having considered me at leisure, he said, What made you ill yesterday? She had a fall, said Bessie, again putting in her word. Fall? Why, that is like a baby again. Can't she manage to walk at her age? She must be eight or nine years old. I was knocked down was the blunt explanation jerked out of me by another pang of mortified pride. But that did not make me ill, I added, while Mr. Lloyd helped himself to a pinch of snuff. As he was returning the box to his waistcoat pocket, a loud bell rung for the servant's dinner. He knew what it was. That's for you, nurse, said he. You can go down. I'll give Miss Jane a lecture till you come back. Bessie would rather have stayed, but she was obliged to go because punctuality at meals was rigidly enforced at Gateshead Hall. The fall did not make you ill? What did then, pursued Mr. Lloyd, when Bessie was gone? I was shut up in a room where there was a ghost, till after dark. I saw Mr. Lloyd smile and frown at the same time. I love that. That's so perfect. It's so simple and so obvious, but it's so perfect. Perfect way to describe an expression. Ghost? What, you are a baby after all. You are afraid of ghosts? Of Mr. Reed's ghost, I am. He died in that room and was laid out there. Neither Bessie nor anyone else will go in it at night if they can help it. And it was cruel to shut me up alone without a candle. So cruel that I think I shall never forget it. Nonsense. And is it that makes you so miserable? Are you afraid now in daylight? No, but night will come again before long. And besides, I am unhappy, very unhappy for other things. What other things? Can you tell me some of them? How much I wish to reply fully to this question. How difficult it was to frame any answer. Children can feel, but they cannot analyze their feelings. And if the analysis is partially affected in thought, they know not how to express the result of the process in words. So true. You can tell Charlotte worked with children. Mm-hmm. I like that she and I are on first name basis. I also like that it's not condescending, where it's like, here's a moment where I'm going to tell you what it's like to be in the brain of a child, where it's like, it's not a lack of facility, it's a lack of capacity. And there's that subtle shift where Jane goes from being like instigated by being called a baby and then also like holding true and saying, yes, I am scared of a ghost. And so it's demonstrating this like honesty and also this uh, steadfastness that I imagine would be pretty disorienting in any child. But I think also like the outside perspective of Mr. Lloyd is it's suggested through his dialogue implies this household is a place where children remain children for a little too long, even by the day's standards. Potentially. I think one of the things that's interesting to me about Mr. Lloyd is not only, as you say, he's like a projector screen, like momentary father figure, but also that like having an outside witness is really important to Jane. Somebody who can like potentially interrupt the abuses that she's going through. And like having read this before, it's like, spoiler alert, we know that that's not Mr. Lloyd, but like there's this moment of like hope where it's like, here's someone, an outside authority figure that could potentially help me. 
Fearful, however, of losing this first and only opportunity of relieving my grief by imparting it, I, after a disturbed pause, contrived to frame a meager, though as far as it went, true response. For one thing, I have no father or mother, brothers or sisters. You have a kind aunt and cousins. Again I paused, then bunglingly, enounced. But Mr. Reed knocked me down, and my aunt shut me up in the red room. Mr. Lloyd, a second time, produced his snuff box. Don't you think Gates Hut Hall a very beautiful house? Asked he. Are you not very thankful to have such a fine place to live at? It is not my house, sir, and Abbott says I have less right to be here than a servant. Pooh, you can't be silly enough to wish to leave such a splendid place. If I had anywhere else to go, I should be glad to leave it. But I can never get away from Gateshead till I am a woman. Perhaps you may. Who knows? Have you any relations besides Mrs. Reed? I think not, sir. None belonging to your father? I don't know. I asked Aunt Reed once, and she said possibly I might have some poor low relations called heir, but she knew nothing about them. If you had such, would you like to go to them? I reflected. Poverty looks grim to grown people, still more so to children. They have not much idea of industrious, working, respectable poverty. They think of the word only as connected with ragged clothes, scanty food, fireless grates, rude manners, and debasing vices. Poverty for me was synonymous with degradation. I feel like the middle of that paragraph there is very clearly Charlotte speaking directly through Jane. Yes, to an England that very, very much links poverty and criminality and poverty and a moral failure. Yeah, and also Charlotte and her family's own social station was working class. No, I should not like to belong to poor people, was my reply. Not even if they were kind to you? I shook my head. I could not see how poor people had the means of being kind. (laughs) Jesus. There's something so true there. And it is harder to be nice when you're poor. It's more of a tax. Yeah. And yet. And yet. uh, The wealthy seem so incredibly cruel. And then to learn to speak like them. To adopt their manners, to be uneducated, to grow up like one of the poor women I saw sometimes nursing their children or washing their clothes at the cottage doors of the village of Gateshead. No, I was not heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of caste. But are your relatives so very poor? Are they working people? So once again, we get that outside perspective leaking in via Mr. Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd, whatever. I cannot tell. Aunt Reed says, if I have any, they must be a beggarly set. I should not like to go a-begging. Would you like to go to school? Again, I reflected. I scarcely knew what school was. Bessie sometimes spoke of it as a place where young ladies sat in stocks, wore backboards, and were expected to be exceedingly genteel and precise. John Reed hated his school and abused his master, but John Reed's tastes were no rule for mine, and if Bessie's accounts of school discipline, gathered from the young ladies of a family where she had lived before coming to Gateshead, were somewhat appalling, her details of certain accomplishments attained by these same young ladies were, I thought, equally attractive. Attractive. Once again, demonstrating the fact that bookish people write books for other bookish people. <laughs> yeah. She boasted of beautiful paintings of landscapes and flowers by them executed, of songs they could sing and pieces they could play, of purses they could net, I love that, of French books they could translate, till my spirit was moved to emulation as I listened. Besides, school would be a complete change. It implied a long journey, an entire separation from Gateshead, an entrance to a new life. Oh, Jane, I've been there. I should indeed like to go to school, was the audible conclusion of my musings. Well, well, who knows what may happen, said Mr. Lloyd as he got up. You know, Mr. Lloyd. (laughs) The child ought to have change of air and scene, he added, speaking to himself. Nerves not in a good state. 
Bessie now returned, and at the same moment the carriage was heard rolling up the gravel walk. Is that your mistress, nurse? asked Mr. Lloyd. I should like to speak to her before I go. Bessie invited him to walk into the breakfast room and led the way out. In the interview which followed between him and Mrs. Reed, I presume, from after occurrences, that the apothecary ventured to recommend my being sent to school, and the recommendation was no doubt readily enough accepted, for, as Abbott said in discussing the subject with Bessie when both sat sewing in the nursery one night after I was in bed and, as they thought, asleep, Mrs. was, she dared say, glad enough to get rid of such a tiresome, ill-conditioned child who always looked as if she were watching everybody and scheming plots underhand, Abbott, I think, gave me credit for being sort of infantine Guy Fox. <laughs> love it. I love these run-on sentences because you really get like that energy. Like she seems so placid in her speaking, but this energy kind of pushes through and get these run-on sentences with lots of seemingly extraneous details that are just meant to skewer her oppressors. I love it. I love Jane Eyre. It's so good. On that same occasion, I learned for the first time from Miss Abbott's communications to Bessie that my father had been a poor clergyman, that my mother had married him against the wishes of her friends who considered the match beneath her. And my grandfather Reed was so irritated at her disobedience, he cut her off without a shilling, that after my mother and father had been married a year, the latter caught the typhus fever while visiting among the poor of a large manufacturing town where his curacy was situated and where that disease was then prevalent that my mother took the infection from him and both died within a month of each other. Formative folklore here for Miss Jane Eyre. Indeed, mother who's as rebellious and sainted as Jane herself is now imagining herself to be. But also that romantic ideal that has existed from the beginning of time of a woman utterly shedding her family Mm -hmm. in order to be with a man and create a new one. And then of course she's punished as well. So everything's okay. Everything (laughs) balances out. Bessie, when she heard this narrative, sighed and said, poor Miss Jane is to be pitied too, Abbott. Yes, responded Abbott. If she were a nice pretty child, one might compassionate her forlornness, but one really cannot care for such a little toad as that. Fuck Abbott. And here it is. Abbott is giving us this, it would almost seem strange, I think, for a nine-year-old Jane to talk about her physical appearance, but this book really needs you to know that she's not beautiful from the jump. Yeah. And I think that's a great deal of the function of what Abbott serves in the text. Yeah. Which is just to tell us that Jane isn't cute. Not a great deal, to be sure, agreed Bessie. At any rate, a beauty like Miss Georgiana would be more moving in the same condition. Jesus! A2, Bessie! Yes, I dote on Miss Georgiana, cried the fervent abbot. Little darling, with her long curls and her blue eyes and such a sweet color as she has, just as if she were painted. Bessie, I could fancy a Welsh rabbit for supper. (laughs) So could I with a roast onion. Come, we'll go down. They went. End of chapter three. What an abrupt ending. What a ride. And what a good joke. What a punchline. What a great chapter. I'm so pleased I had the privilege of reading it out loud to you. I very much enjoyed it. It was chef's kiss. Any reflections? I think, especially as we're thinking about it in terms of like a temple text for the romance genre, I think what 
you're so right to say is like, Jane's ugly from jump, everybody says so, right? So this idea of not only not being seen in terms of value in terms of her outer appearance, but also how her outer appearance often obfuscates or clouds others from seeing her like inner fortitude, inner joy, inner whatever. And that like this blindness that the world has sort of like wrapped and shrouded Jane in is something that she's going to really seek to overcome with others and like this external need to be seen I think is so evident in the romance genre right where it's like often the heroine or the hero it's like you see me for me the first three chapters here are so relentless like nobody sees Jane I think another feature that reminds me of, of how this is a tentpole for things that seem so radically separate from Jane Eyre sometimes you know mm-hmm. but this like prevalence of, of what we would call like gothic horror detail mm-hmm. So gothic in the way that gothic is scary, not gothic in the way of like, we love nature Mm -hmm. that people like to associate sometimes. But like this gothic, spooky details pervading, but also tied to a very specific kind of folklore. Gothic in that way. I just want to be specific about it because that is where romance is going to live for centuries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right up until the 1970s. Yeah. So maybe when was this first published? 1840s. So century and some change. But, you know, I want to know, like, I heard someone say once that they get really confuse a woman film critic said she gets really confused whenever people say best in female horror because she's like all horror is about being a woman all (laughs) horror is about the feminine and it's bizarre that they think like even when men make horror they're talking about being afraid (laughs) of women Mm -hmm. and I think that's so true and like this idea of horror as being innately feminine right like the majority of true crime consumers a great deal of horror consumers are female more than 50 percent which would be the, you know. Anyways, I I think that's interesting. And I wonder if I'll gain some clarity on that because it's something I do ponder all the time as we continue reading. Like, how do we get from gothic to fumbled by Alexa Martin? And like, what of the gothic is still living there within fumbled? Oh, I, I think we'll find more of those Venn diagrams when we meet Mr. Rochester. I think absolutely. And also, so many previews of Mr. Rochester, all of these firm featured yeah. <laughs> father figures coming in and out of her life, the ghost of her uncle, the idea of her father, Mr. Lloyd, who's, yeah, we'll get into it in the next chapter, but smiles and frowns. Yes. Just all of that. And of course, you know, the Rochester as being the true hero archetype for romance uh, rather than the Darcy, which is just to show all of our cards, our ultimate project. I mean, we're going to get there because like, is Darcy a red herring? You know, discuss. Yeah. So Isabeau is going to read chapter four next time. And we hope that you'll be there to listen cross-legged on the little rug that looks like a city landscape looking up at her with your saucer-like child eyes, post-snack time, just digesting your Cheez-Its, the wafts of Purell hand sanitizer in the air. Dude, you are bringing up a very specific memory for me from the time that I was eight or nine and having been read out loud to in school on my little reading rug. And I'll tell you what book we were reading. Mm. It was the story of Addie escaping slavery. Oh, prescient. Mrs. Fisher, second grade. I hate to tell you, Isabeau, I'm sure that description brought up a lot of very specific memories for all of our listeners. (laughs) 
I mean, I was just like, I was like, oh man, why am I seeing Addie in her pink dress and blue bonnet? And I was like, ah, Mrs. Fisher, second grade. Mrs. Fisher, second grade. All right. Uh, talk to you again soon. Mwah. <laughs>